Kia ora and welcome to this episode of the Stag Roar. This episode is brought to you by our mates at Modern Pirate, 100% carbon neutral. Modern Pirate makes an amazing range of men's grooming products. And if you're one of our Aussie listeners, then you've probably seen them in your quality barber shop. I've used the pomade in their matte clay paste to style what hair I have left. And their charcoal soap is the business. You can get 10% off every order by simply entering the code STAGROAR at checkout. That's lowercase S-T-A-G-R-O-A-R. Look good and support yet another quality Kiwi export that the Aussies are sure to claim as their own. Check them out at modernpirate.com.au. That code again is STAGROAR. Kia ora and welcome to episode 182 of the STAGROAR. This episode I'm joined by Wicker's Adventures. He's known as Ben Piggott. Um, this episode we have a real awesome chat about Ben's adventures, Wicker's adventures, in the backcountry of New Zealand and his role with the Department of Conservation, looking at the assets, which means the huts, um, the tracks, and yeah, get a little bit of an insight into the man behind such an awesome and inspiring Instagram page. Um, ben was requested by a couple of people, so as we do on the stagger giving the people what they want. Without further ado, enjoy this one, hell of a yarn, and uh, make sure you reach out to both Ben and myself. If you've uh, got five seconds, give us a rating on whatever platform you're listening to this on, and uh, if you've got another five seconds, a review would go bloody outstanding. Cheers, enjoy. Kia ora everyone, I'm uh, joined by Benjamin, is it, is it Pijo? Pijo? No, it's just just pig it, mate. Not pig nice it. and simple as it looks. Yeah, yeah. As it looks, mate. As it looks. AKA Wicker's Adventures, mate. Where's the nickname Wicker come from? Oh. Well, I think uh, we'll, we'll we'll keep the PG version going, but um, Wickers are quite cheeky eh, and quite cunning. So, you know, there's a couple of good um good adventures in the backcountry that probably gave me that name, but um, it's kind of like exclusively from from my mates, you know. Yeah. But uh, no, I do I'll just chuck Wicker in there as a. Uh, I think people start to realize now who it is but um now nah, a pretty mischievous day on the old adventures there's always something happens so um crafty and cunning for me that springs to mind mate it's uh it's nicking the odd thing i hope, I hope that's not where it comes from <laughs> <laughs> no 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 definitely not no no they're just um, oh, they're just cool animals though. i just love them they're um probably my favorite new zealand bird they're just crafty and they get into everything and cause mischief and they're just real curious. So yeah, it's a pretty cool bird to uh, go nickname by. Yeah, the, the uh, my best experience with Wickers is on uh, in Patterson Inlet, an old island. Um, we went there for a school camp and I was I was hugely thankful because I was sick before we even went on the fishing boat that day. And um, yeah, so that oh, was yeah. a I was bringing making all the burley for, for everyone on the boat. And then, yeah, we managed to get to Old Island. I felt a whole lot better and, and you oh. got, got to interact with those cheeky buggers. So it was, it was bloody good. Oh. You got me there? Yeah, I'm here. Yep. I'm listening. Hopefully nice, nice. Holds in there. Yeah, that's all right. The, we often get a bit, bit shaky in the first 10 minutes of Zoom. I don't know, don't know what it is, but for some reason, the first 10 minutes is a bit shaky and then it hits its straps. Um, mate, you're drinking a cup of tea. Uh, what happened to the Raro? Oh, oh, hey, the hot Raro. I tell you what, um, the, the debate over this has been phenomenal. Eh? I didn't expect such a backlash. So 
to me, hot raro is just just what you have in the bush. It's um, it's just the goer, you know. It's just nice and aesthetically pleasing. It's just awesome. And um, yeah, I put it up on the old Instagram, and everyone's, what's this hot raro key on? And I was like, it's just what you do. Like as a kid, that's kind of first starting out tramping. That's what you have. It rejuvenates you, gives you the energy. It's great, you know. And um, yeah, I'm surprised most people don't know anything about it. So. Yeah, good cup of hot rara, just not boiling is, is the key, just nice and warm, and um, you're away. Yeah. Nice. And so is that a morning trick, an evening trick, any day, any sure. time of the day trick? I think it, it depends on the level of how buggered you are, really. So um, <laughs> in, any time, probably exclusively for the evening, and after a, a real long day on the hill, get back in hot rara. The, the, the next step in the evolution of that is hot barocca. Um, which I'm sort of disinclined to introduce to people yet because uh, they haven't got the hot raro, so hot barocca might be a you know, step too far, but um, that's also really good too. So. Yeah. No, I, my cousin gave me uh, one of the backcountry, I guess it was called like a overnight pack or weekend pack, and um, there's a there's a sachet in there of, of um, you know, crystallized cordial. And so, but I didn't know I didn't know what time of day to, to use it. So now now that I've got the tip, and then and then of course there's there's, there's the hunt smart. I wonder I wonder, wonder how that goes. That's probably along the same lines of, of, of the Barocca, mate. It, it might just all those all those oh. B vitamins and, and, and BCAs just might uh, take things over the edge. Yeah, true. I, I can't comment. I don't want to get into a bit of a brand war here, but I imagine the hot hunt smart would be pretty good too. Yeah. Brand wars, yeah. No, it's a, it's always yeah. A, yeah, oh, it's just like I mentioned, you know, the, the backcountry and they've, they've up the game. You know, there was a few few gluten free ones in there, which I was like, oh, this is this is good, yeah. But um, you mm -hmm. see, I saw you, I saw you were dabbling in a bit of a bit of radix as well. How, how have you found that in the backcountry? Do you think you could yeah. you know, fifty four days straight on it? That's what they that's what the guys oh. reckon. That guy ran across the Atlantic, uh, Atlantic Pacific did, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, I actually, I think it was over 100, wasn't it? Yeah, I, yeah. Um, it's funny, I actually listened to your podcast with, um, with um, old Radix the other day in a, in a hut in Te Urewera and um, I was sitting there eating one and I thought, oh, that podcast looks real good, so listen to it, and yeah, that story was incredible, man, I just um, really gave me the appreciation of what meal I was eating, and I started looking at the packaging, you know, and thought, crikey, yeah, but um, I definitely like the Radix, um, I was Bit of a fan of backcountry for quite a while, um, backcountry cuisine, and still a good meal. But um, Radix is new for me, and yeah, really love them. Just the nutrition, I think, um, real important in, in, in my line of work to get a good meal at the end of the day. Um, yeah. Something I can resonate with with his message was just getting the max out of that meal. So while it tastes good, um, yeah, full energy. So yeah, definitely rate it. Absolutely, man. And, and you've, you've got, you've, you've uh, as you said, you set the ambience, the, the atmosphere there. You've got the map on the wall with all the, with all the pins. <laughs> I, I take it those are the hearts. Oh, can't give too many seats away, but yep, those are my, um, that's all the huts in Te Urewera, Whiranaki, Tupuatane, and a few other ranges as well. So that's kind of my, um, my little patch run around. So yeah, I uh, sit there and scheme um, as to where to next, I guess. Nice. And so, mm. what what was what's the crossover between going to these huts and you work with Doc? Yeah, cool. So I guess um, I'm pretty new to my to my current role, and I'm I'm really enjoying it. But um, fortunate enough, um, I'm what's called an inspector. So Doc has um, a whole lot of asset inspectors, basically, who 
every asset's on a life cycle, right? on, a, on a cycle that needs to be checked. So um, in my position, we get to rock around the back country or any front country as well. And every time an asset comes up for inspection, we go and, and uh, check it out. So fortunately for me, uh, that fits really well with my passion for huts and hut bagging. So I get to go um, into these you know, really cool backcountry places and check um, on these assets from a safety point of view and a condition of life assessment. So two components to it. Want to make sure an asset's safe and that it's um, you know, hanging in there really. So yeah. tees in really well to get in the backcountry. <laughs> Well, uh, mate, I, I don't know if you're the right person to, but I was at, I was at uh, don't know if it's it, classes and asset anymore, but the, the, the Makino Viv's in, in a little bit of need of, of an upgrade. Mm. I was, I was mm. wondering if if, um, if we could do something like the Backridge Biv, bring, bring bring one of those into the uh, in, into that little beautiful wee basin that it sits in. Um, we were walking back from the Makino hut and, and just oh, probably 100 metres towards the hut we just had a deer stroll across the track so <laughs> it's, it's oh, a bl- bloody little good good spot in there and, and and as i'm learning more and more the more time i go in there the, the lay of the land i can see why that biv is is set up in there but unfortunately the mm. old um the iron is, is getting a bit holy mm. and, and when the rain was coming down we poked the the uh the torch inside and saw a few puddles of oh well we won't be staying here tonight yeah and, and that that's it eh? i mean that's the question do do you do something like that up and you might get a whole lot more people go there that's maybe that's a plus or a minus i don't know eh? it's just those, those hard questions but um the bct is definitely doing some awesome work now and um a lot of these kind of smaller sites are getting a lot more um emphasis on so you never know yeah. this could be a future project yeah i'll match short who he does a little bit of work mm. with, the, with the rohanis he, he was looking through me through the list and yeah uh, he's got a Good connection with the uh, Makino Biv as well, so uh, mm. I think I think he went and tried to do a little bit of a work on it at the end of, end of last year. But yeah, it needs needs some new iron or, or just maybe a complete do over with, with with the new Biv style. Would it be far to walk from the um, from the clearing or from the from the Carnegie? But we'll see. We we'll might mm. have to have a chat to the the dock office and might bring it up at the next uh, Hastings NZDA. It could be something that we that we put forward. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and that's the thing, eh? it's, it's really cool. I think Doc, um, there's probably historically been a bit of negative perception around Doc and wanting to get things done. But now, um, certainly the BCT along and a lot of mindset changes, there's these awesome opportunities opening up with um, community groups managing huts and putting in the effort. Because, I mean, a lot of the time, you know, we want these huts to stay there. It's just how do we do that? So um, it's, it's really neat that we've got groups and dedicated people, like you mentioned, Matt's name before, real keen. And that's awesome. Need more people like that. Yeah. So, how much does the backcountry test come come and interact with you? Oh, I mean, hey, end of the day, we're just the, the guys on the ground running around finding the problems. So, really, probably not a lot. Um, there are quite a few inspectors who have a really good building background or engineering background. They probably get utilised um, quite a bit in certain areas. Just depends. I mean, for them, they kind of need eyes and ears. And inspectors, in our role, we are the eyes and ears for Doc, basically. So we kind of, again, find the problems, pass them on. So sometimes it um, could be applicable for them to, for us to jump on a flight with them, I guess, and check something out if we've got some information. So it just depends, eh? Yeah. Um, so Rohini's just had the uh, A-frame hut redone, and I saw plenty of people, mm. plenty of people saying they need to put some boulders or, or, or bollards in front of the track to stop people wrecking oh. it. That Someone wrote that someone drove up the thing. I mean... What, what that just make must yep. break your heart. 
Oh mate, I've seen a yeah, I've seen a video of yeah, someone doing that. Um, it's just it's just really sad, eh? Um, to think that I mean, hey, a perfect little lean to a frame. Of course, people are gonna drive up, but hey, it's just it's just really sad that that happens because people do have no consideration for the amount of time and effort it takes to build something like that and to maintain it. Uh, so it really is heart wrenching, eh? But the fact that there's you know groups in there now fixing it up is. I guess a really good outcome of that. Um, so they've they've got some bollards protection in place that I think will uh, hopefully prevent people driving up it again. But yeah, that hut needed some serious love. And again, there's a lot of huts like that around, especially road end huts. Say eh? anything with four drives tend to tend to seem to get hammered. So it's just about looking after them, not smashing them, eh? Yeah, mm. <clears throat> and it, and I suppose it's like that little bit of balance. I went into Awatiria the other day. That is only a Mm. It says two hour walk, but probably you could do it in 45 minutes to an hour if, if you yeah. yeah, hoon it. But um, yeah, you know, that's that's not far to go and, it, and it's in great nick and it looks like it's had a little bit of work done mm. on it. The, the, I think the information says it's a four better and, and you can fit about eight or nine people in there. So yeah. um, what what sort of drives the decision to, to increase the bed numbers or change it around or increase the size or upgrade it to a, to a higher level hut? Do you know much into that? Yeah, so I guess um, there's quite a quite a bit, and actually that's where part of my role um, does come into it. So with assets, obviously they have a life cycle um, depending on the level of deterioration. So you're looking at it, um, Inspector might go and say a hut has 20% estimate remaining life. So that's 20% of a certain time period. So say a hut's 30, 40, 50 years, whatever it is, and then they'll look at replacing that asset. So for us, we can have a gauge as to how many years you know we think that uh, hut has left so that kind of feeds into an overall um, review for replacement but as far as it, like extending bunks and things and adding adult you know upgrades to a hut it really depends on I guess the district and what they want to do in the backcountry of course you've got lots of huts like the Paradis for example you know there's over 40 huts in there or Henny's 59 odd and that's a lot of huts to maintain so to fly around and you know try and build big extensions onto them isn't really practical so often most of the time you know you're not really looking at upgrading those kind of huts certainly backcountry ones obviously new rebuilds um, are important at really heavily hit, hit sites so for example sunrise hut you know you've got lots of people going up there so that kind of site would probably be um, I guess designated you know more so for an upgrade or an extension rather than something like Marapia Forks or but it's really dependent on as well visitor numbers so this is kind of where there's an argument for hut books and people signing hut books um, a lot of some or some cases to build new huts or fix huts um, come from how many people visit those huts, of course. So signing the visitor book is, is really the best thing we can do as um, outdoors people to let DOC know how many people are going there. I know lots of people, myself included in the past, and used to sign hut books and then um, had it pointed out to me that, hey, if you don't do that, how do we know how many people are going there? So that's another really vital uh, bit of information that, that um, people like DOC people and doc use just to you know how many people go to these huts is it worth putting other two bunks in 20 bunks and or whatever the case is so hmm. yeah and does it does it sort of matter like say the free huts um might be a, a place where people are less inclined to sign in because you know they're not recording their ticket number um or another case maybe that, that those huts are a little less up up to scratch so again there's not not that sort of buy-in but if there's sort of a large number of people going and recording at a lesser lesser hut, would that sort of prompt 
like you said, more more sort of investment and, and more resources into that type of place? I mean, potentially, I think um, it's quite dependent on location too. I mean, say if you've got a two-bunk hut that's just getting hammered, like a little dog box built, then sure, I mean, that would really question, um, you know, put some serious questions forward as, hey, is this enough? Do we need something bigger? Um, I mean, look at Iongate Hut in Nuruhenis, you know, that's um, the new one in there. So there's all of these kind of things that definitely feed into it. So even if it's a free hut, um, like a basic backcountry hut, still worthwhile because you just don't know what's going to happen with it. I mean, the worst thing that can happen is the hut gets pulled out and that mm. will only generally happen unless it's hit by a, by a um, you know, rock slide or avalanche or whatever. And, this, and that happens, it's going to be because people aren't using it. So if people can record, you know, if they go there, that's the best thing that we can be doing. You said about mm. uh, rock slides. There's a picture of your uh, on your Instagram of a hut that's been <laughs> washed down a down a stream. It looked looked reasonably intact. What was the story there, man? Oh yeah, man, that's that's funny story. That was actually how I started in Doc was um because of that hut. It's kind of weird. It's funny how life channels, yeah. But that's uh Digger's hut in the Rohini's. Well, it was formerly Digger's hut, and um. So it's just off Takapati Road, you can drop down into it or come up the creek and uh, mate and I went in there hunting and it was snowing and pretty bad weather, eh? And we, I don't know why we were going, but, you know, we did and um, dropped down. It was pouring with rain. We got down to the creek, some Makawakawa Creek, and um, couldn't cross it. Way too, you know, raging torrent. So we camped up, spent the night there. And the next morning, the river was still pretty marginal. Hadn't seen any deer. It was just way too wet. So anyway, my mate wanted to head out. And I said, no, nah, we'll go down to the hut. You know, for me, I tripped kind of has to have a hut that you know even if it's hunting you've got to get to a hut at some point in the trip so um we, we'd actually been there before so we knew where it was so you know we had to smash down the, the true left side because we couldn't walk down the river you know we got down to the flats where the hut should have been and it was like it was real weird it was all uh, like in a jungle like monsoon kind of territory it was just all the bush was sort of covered in water and up to our knees wading through you know mahari trees with with water it was really weird and um there was a big backlog and we thought this isn't too good and um got down to the terrace and there was just this big cutout mm. and um we saw the toilet sitting there and the toilet was fine and um my mate danny said first said to me was no mate the hut's gone i looked and i said this that doesn't happen you know you, you know how many times do you hear people finding huts washed it doesn't happen i didn't believe him so he did a bit of walking around and he'd come back with a post with a whole lot of concrete you know a big pile with a bit of concrete on it Put it in front of me and he said there you go mate it's gone and um with that i yeah i had to believe him so i looked out on the river and i saw the porch or a bit of the veranda sitting on the on the river so um, that's when we knew it was gone so we did a bit of uh bit of thinking and we thought well we better go and find it so we um we kind of crossed over the river and it, we probably looking back it was pretty dodgy i had to climb over this tree and the river was pretty high and anyway got down and hut it was about 300 meters downstream Wow. So it had gone quite a quite a way, and um, yeah, it was just sitting there, perfect as you say, in the middle. And I actually climbed in, had a little poke around in there, and um, the the floor had lifted off, had kind of ripped off, and some silt had got in. But other than that, she looked looked really good. But unfortunately, um, yeah, it couldn't be saved just because of its condition where where it was, of course. So they had to chop it up and fly it out piece for piece. But the fireplace survived, so that's sitting somewhere for another hut, you know. Yeah. <laughs> So do you know if there's any plan to replace it? Oh, it's been a bit of a debate because um, it's quite a quite a cool spot, especially for hunting in there. Probably shouldn't say it on your podcast, they give it away, but it's um, no, it's a real cool spot in, in that creek. And um, while there is, you know, again, there, some people would like a hut to be there, where it was, the terrace was destroyed. 
and that was kind of a really good good site so whether um you know they want to put a new hut in there on another terrace i don't know but um again putting a hut in is pretty costly so going back to what i said earlier about you know visitor numbers and user groups you gotta look how many people actually use that site and if it's a whole lot of hunters who don't sign the book it's quite hard for um, a planning team to justify building or putting a proposal for to build a new six bunk hut so that's where something like you know the bct might come in don't know but um yeah pretty hard spot to get a hut in mm. yeah it's you're sort of, sort of saying about hunters not really signing in that was one thing at the Makino hut there was a long time between hunters in there and and maybe it is just that they haven't been signing the book so mm. yeah hard to tell eh? i mean in, in some cases um up to sort of 60 percent of people 50 to 60 percent we reckon don't sign hut books so it depends on the area eh? but it's not just hunters you know definitely not not slagging a civic user group off. Um, lots of people might be running through day mm. trips. A lot of day trippers don't sign books. So it's just trying to change that mindset. I mean, yeah, it takes you a couple of minutes, but one, it's good for your safety. And two, it, um, it really hits home um, when those hut books are collected by a ranger or an inspector. We'll take them into the office and um, one of the planning team guys will have it sitting there and it might be used for, you know, that data might be used. It takes a lot of effort to go through a hut book. I have had to do that in one of my previous top roles, read every single line and enter it in. It's um, it's a lot of data, eh? A lot of data. Good yarns, though. Yeah, absolutely. Um, mm. Do Do you also collect the tickets while you're in there? Ah, uh, depends. Um, again, if a hut, hut ticket box is full and we have a key, sometimes it's usually locked. We, we might do that, but um, normally that that's kind of the ranger's job. We'll go and do that. Again, we're the eyes and ears when we're finding issues. Um, sometimes I might carry a hut book with me to top it up, but normally we'll put a notification in for that. Got to give someone else a fun job too. Eh? We we can't have all the fun. That's <laughs> it's a special job. Eh? You're taking collecting up, collecting You're up. Taking the, the tickets. tickets. <laughs> <laughs> so is, is there some sort of hard and fast rule that goes with how much uh, a, a night stay in a back backcountry hut costs? Yeah, so it just it depends on the category of hut. So you know you've got basic, uh, which are generally free. Um, your standard huts, which I think are about five bucks a night. Five dollars. Don't yeah. quote me on that yeah something with a ticket um again so i don't you can also get the backcountry hut passes which i used to use before my doc, doc time so they're really good but um yeah and then, then a service hut can sort of be around 15 dollars. i think it's three three five dollar tickets so it just depends on that category and then great walk huts of course um vary in, in prices but they can be at that top end but um definitely a, a backcountry hut pass for anyone who's sort of visiting i think more than probably 10 or 12 huts you know, kind of serviced huts in a year, staying the mm. night, a backcountry hut pass, which gives you the full year, um, really worthwhile. So I think they're kind of over $100 to sit around that sort of somewhere yeah, between 120 130 Yeah, I think you're right really there. Good. I did have a look, um, yeah, shortly after, yeah, that was in December, and I think you're right, about $130, $30. And so, yeah, mm. we're doing the, doing the math on the sort of $5 hut. Um, like yeah, I was like, sure. I was lucky on Saturday night, I had a ticket in, in my bag, but I sort of said to the other bloke, you know, next time you buy a hut pass, just grab two and, you know, that's, mm. that's your IO, chuck, chuck in the hut book where, where it's for and and um, and you'll be good. Like I, last time I was in Makino, before that, I had, had to put in one for, for Macintosh um, that yep. I forgot, forgot and, my hut pass for. Exactly. I mean, hey, and that happened. And, and that's that's why I think people do get quite embarrassed about it, but it's it happens. You know, you forget. And, I mean, again, jumping on a topic, there are you know quite a few people who don't pay for huts and and sometimes they think that you know because pay taxes and so on that's okay and i mean hey if that's their belief um i mean that's not 
how it works because we still got to maintain these assets, but that that's how they roll with it. But um, I think yeah, if if you forget, you can pop one in, in the next hut. That's um, that's good as gold, you know. Happens all the time. Yeah, I had, had to laugh. Um, I sort of didn't really understand the idea of hut passes because there's a um dock book in the Mangaturutu hut in the Kaimais, um, but it's a free hut. The, everyone had, in, it had entered into the hut past like their rifle caliber and so I just thought you know, <laughs> that, that was people being being cheeky there they hadn't bring a hut pass and I was sort of sitting in the hut by myself going oh shit was I supposed to bring a hut pass in there and I found yeah, out yeah, but, yeah. but then of course the Kawika ones are, are, are mostly a bit higher level and so yeah you mm. need to bring a, bring a ticket along and so you know mm. it's, have, I have forgotten that one time but yeah that's something that I keep, mm. keep conscious of because exactly that you it's such an amazing asset and for five bucks like it's pretty incredible especially when you look at that's places right. overseas and you know lodges and all, all the rest you know it's pretty amazing to have that thing that you can just roll out a sleeping bag you know and uh, mm. sleep pretty comfortable have a fire on it's beautiful yeah oh, to be fair and we're so lucky in New Zealand I think and a lot of us take that for granted well I certainly did um, probably still do to an extent like we just have it really, really well off. Um, in fact, we can just, on a weekend, pack up, go into a hut, stay there cheap or for free or tent for free and just go hunting. Like, we've really got it, you know, pretty well sussed here. And we, we really owe that to, um, back to the deer culling days when the Forest Service built all the huts, you know. That's what started it off, off for of deer control. So um, thanks for introducing deer, I guess, our ancestors. Eh? That's where we've got all these huts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and... and um... Thankfully, there was a few smart people that saw an industry um, for for meat, and then of course wild capture as well. Mm. The same sort of thing mm. for our service, you know, made made some money, and some people made some money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, mate, you, you said about you know going going hunting. Your um your email had the number two seventy in there. Is that a reference to your caliber of choice? No, no, de- definitely not. I couldn't couldn't dare touch two seventy. Um, <laughs> No, I um no, definitely not. I, actually, I shouldn't say that because the rifle caliber I use is a bit smaller than that. So, <laughs> but um no, no, that's a um I actually just run a seven mil eight or seven mil latte as most people would say. So Auckland caliber, I think everyone gives me stick for. But hey, it's it's shot bull tar, you know. It's all I need, all I need for now. Yeah. So, and where where did the collecting huts or hut bagging, as you um, termed it, where did that come in? Was that Part part of what got you into the bush, or while you were in the bush, you sort of started to go to one, two. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Eh? Um, I didn't I didn't start out a tramper, or I guess if you like, or hut bagging. I, I started out hunting as a young fellow. Come up from a family who um, was pretty into hunting. My grandfather was really big in it, and um, in, the, in the early days, and um, that was all I wanted to do. And it kind of started out in the Tararuas, got out a few hunts with my uncle and cousins, and um, started going to the old hut. And Hedapai Hut was my first hut, and Roaring Stag, and the Tararuas. And I didn't really show interest, eh? I just wanted to go hunting. <laughs> and um, sort of, I remember coming down from Hedapai, my uncle told me a story that he knew someone that had been to all the huts in the Tararuas. And I just heard that, and I thought, wow, that's that's epic. Like, could never do that, you know? That's about 40, there was 45, I think, at the time. I thought, that's that's insane. So um, I got a map and put it on the wall, probably like the one behind me. And um, the Tararuas, I must have been about 13, and looked at it all, and I just said, right, I'm going to go to every single one. I just gave myself a few years, and, I mean, it took me a while, but um, I got there. So it was just, you know, progression through hunting and benching to tramping, and it just alternates. So I just started out with a small dream, eh? 
And then once I did the Tararua's, I thought, well, might as well start on the Ruhinis and progress north, you know? Yeah, yeah. So what age What age was that? Oh, I think I've probably been 12. So not as young as, as, as lots of kids get into hunting nowadays, which is which is cool. But yeah, 12 was when I went to first hut. So um, since then, I'm only, crikey, I'm only 24. And I've been to 262 now, I think. So oh. I'm chomping through them. Yeah, I've been to, in the last year, I think I've been to like 100 alone. So I really racked it up in the last year or so. So nice. um, yeah, yeah, it's good. But to me, it's not just about, you know, bagging a hut. It's, it's about the whole adventure. So, you know, you can fly on pack raft you can fish there's just so many different cool things you can do at a hut you know there's nothing better than getting to an old forest service hut with open fire yeah. you know cranking up the smoky fire and cooking cooking a bit of vinny on it you know it's just primo absolutely yeah. Mate, before we get into pack rafting um you, you mentioned the oh. your grandfather um what what was his mm. sort of um stories and tales of mentorship yeah it's pretty pretty cool so i unfortunately one of the age where i got to know him well enough from his hunting stories but I've had his kind of legacy to live up to afterwards. And um, he did quite a bit of stuff down south with um, Swedish Stuart Island. He really loved that. He did 21 trips there in his time, and um, he really loved Stuart Island. And certainly hunting uh, Wapiti in the early days. So the late sort of 1950s and 60s, he did quite a bit down there. And they sort of started pioneering the, the old food drops out of aeroplanes. Mm-hmm. They didn't have a very good success rate, eh? They used to drop their food, and they'd smash most of it. So they had to go weeks without food. So um, certainly with um, fresh food anyway. So it did some pretty cool trips. And just hearing those sort of stories as a young fella really inspired me to go hunting. You know, seeing photos of Tar and Shammy, you know, he had some awesome photos, um, which back in those days, he used to carry about seven or eight pounds of camera equipment with him, you know. So they were, they were, they were hardcore guys back then, you know. And, um, and it was just hearing those stories really got me into it. So um, while I didn't have enough time to go hunting with him, I was too young, certainly being around um, and looking at his photos really got me captivated, eh? So was he taking um, those on slides or, or on film? Yeah, 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 slides. Yep, slides at the start and then progress the film. So, yeah, so we managed to get all of them and, and my old man um, did a really good job of sort of scanning all the old, old photos. So we've got sort of all, the, all those old memories, which we've kind of started putting in the book. So hopefully we can get that um, just for our family's sake. Hey, just keep, keep it all there and keep it together. Might be able to add to it one day, who knows? Absolutely. Um, someone I used to work with uh, in Te Aumuru, their um, grandfather was one of the first um, deer farming licenses. They were, they were at um, Island, Island Station, which is near the Blue Lake in, in Rotorua. And yep. yeah, they had this family book of, of his sort of journeys through farming and that, and that whole sort of expedition. Mm. And, and like, there was just something that their family had made and she gave it to me and like such a, such a cool read. So yeah, having something like mm. that as a family would just be pretty, pretty awesome. Um, you said around yeah. the, the food drops that's in, in um, Call of the Wapiti. How, how sort of long mm. was, was he in there for? Well, again, I, I you can talk my head, I can't remember, but I, I looking at, his, at the book at the notes, so kind of talking, you know, almost a month at a time and um, <laughs> and maybe longer. Like some of the walks they did were just insane. And the gear they had at the time, I remember uh, one of the stories they had the tent, the, the tarp over them and the pouring rain, I think it was for six days it rained, which is not unusual, of course, nonstop. And their, their seam seals back in the day weren't, weren't so good. So they were getting butter, um, you know, knife and butter and sealing it up with butter to stop the rain coming through the roof. So um, pretty, pretty desperate, eh? Yeah. And, and how were they sort of getting then just grabbing the boat across the lake or were they going around the, down the coast as well? 
yeah, through Jenny on the boat, um, and then they just walk massive ways in, and and um, you have a have a big drop off of food. So, yeah, they did a com a combination of things, but normally it was the boat. Mm. And was it was he chasing reds on Stuart Island or going for whitetail? Going for whitetail, yeah. He he certainly loved that. I think that was that was in his kind of his his later years when um, he sort of started to slow down a little bit. He didn't slow down a lot, but um, it was just enough for him. I think he found his happy place down there. So um, definitely a big goal of mine to go back to those hunting spots he went and um, just to be there. Eh? I've got a few of his old hut photos. I went through his albums and some of the huts, most of them are gone, but some of them that are existing, I'm pretty keen to go back to and, you know, just kind of from that family connection. So there might be a couple on Stewie I had to go check out. Mate, that's bloody, bloody mm. special. Um, so mm. you, you mentioned pack rafting and that, that's why we couldn't talk the other week. How did it, how did it all go? Oh, yeah, it's been good. Um, pet rafting is a pretty pretty new sport for me. I just kind of had a mate who bought one and he said, oh, just, just get into it. So <laughs> I did. And um, we've just been, yeah, hitting the water ever since. So um, I've actually got got another trip coming up, uh, hopefully in a few days. Uh, I've got to take a bit of time off work because I've been working too much in, in, in the Te Urawera, But um, hopefully we'll do, do a five-dayer. We're just um, hoping for a bit of rain because the water level's a bit low at the moment. But, um, yeah, it makes it a bit bony, a little bit hard to bounce down. But, um the whole point of that for me was just to, I like the idea of being able to float down a river with a rifle and shoot a deer and put it on the raft. That was the primitive idea, and it's a bit more complicated than that, I found. So um, hitting up some technical grade grade three plus waters definitely been pretty exciting. Um, it's enough for me. I'm a bit of an adventure seeker. Sometimes you get a bit sick of tramping and you know walking around, and you, so I thought, why not get a pack raft? So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see how we go on the next big trip. And so what was your experience with rafting or, or kayaking before? Like um, if you want to do the coast to coast, you've got to do the grade three certification. Uh, what have you done? <laughs> <laughs> oh, crikey, I didn't say that. Um, no, man, it's, it's jumping in from pretty much nothing. Um, I had did a little bit of kayaking on some odd courses as, as, as a young fella and um, really enjoyed it. And just with this one, I think that the trick is safety and numbers. Just scripted up with a few mates and who also have them and we um, just play it, play it that way. Do a bit of research, bit of homework, takes a fair bit of thought into getting the flow right and understanding how to read white water. And I'm definitely not an expert at it. Had a couple of times where those holes suck you back in and you got to paddle like heck to get out of them. But it's just yeah, learning through experience and um and being safe about it. You, you know, it's not something you can just kind of you know go and do a grade two rapid straight away. You definitely got to build into it. So um getting those experienced people is, is also really important. So I'm quite networking at the moment, building that network of people who know more than I do, which is good. I'm a firm believer of having more people around you that know, you know, everything rather than you know everything. Mm -hmm. So um, that's what I'm doing with backrafting you. Yeah. Nice, mate. And you, you brought up two Arawera. Um, what, what's your role there? So you're ducking into the the huts at the Eastern Fio Link U. So how was that across mm. over? Yeah, it was pretty cool. Uh, again, so my role, I'm quite fortunate to be able to work in um, Te Arawera, um with, with, with TUT, so Tuhui, um, the, the trust. And um, again, it's asset conditions. So a lot of huts in there. There's, I think, again, around 44 um, visitor huts. Um, got biodiversity work huts as well, and obviously big Lambeth tracks. So um, they all need to be checked um, and made sure that they're still you know, safe and in good condition. So that's why I'm running around in there. I'm just catching up on, on work and making sure the huts are good. A few swing bridges too. Um, quite big old forest service swing bridges. So the Waueka, the other day I did a seven-day solo trip. Um, very heavy pack because I had to carry a few tools and hut books. So it wasn't light. And um, yeah, did a big loop. 
in the uh, in, in the Tauranga side and uh, from Waimana and uh, went over and looped into Eastern Fialik country. So that, that was pretty cool. Um, saw a few fear, I only saw four, um, but it was pretty neat to see. So yeah, looped around to Tawaha and then back up into Tiruwera. So old uh, Sam the Trap Man's country. Yeah, um, I've been Matt, Matt Short and I happened to join him in, in about June, so um, that, that should be bloody good fun. For you know, for mm. for me, looking at Tiruwera, uh, it seems a little bit of a, a mystery. What sort of the you, know, you said you know ecology going on in there? What sort of the management focus for that area? Yeah, so in terms of I guess you can split the two a um, ecology or biodiversity and assets and. For me now, I have a background in ecology and, and biodiversity at, at university, so that's kind of my strong point, but my game now is an asset. So uh, in terms of the biodiversity space, you know, I couldn't tell you a lot about what they're doing, but I know they do have um, some pretty good trapping programs that are that, that are running through. If you think of Tiruwera as a whole, I think you've got to kind of think that it's it's in its, its primitive state. It's just growing, you know, it's fostering this kind of idea and, and these awesome goals they have. So it's not something that's already established necessarily from Doc's time. Um, there's a lot of new ideas and, and new programs going in. Um, so with that, especially the biodiversity space, you know, they're, they're definitely um, exploring new ideas, which is really cool. Um, so maybe new tracking methods or different 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 ways to do things, I guess. So from that aspect, um, yeah, the biospace is definitely growing. Um, there's lots of, definitely lots of biodiversity in there, like you just see the old, you know, feel. And um, a few kaka flying around, lots of robins, really cool to see. I haven't heard any poor kaka yet, but they are in there in places. So. Yeah, definitely a little little hub. Yeah, and so has that country been milled at any stage in the past, or is it all just sort of virgin stuff? Well, I, I guess that depends where you define the boundary of, of Tiruwera. Um, I mean, a lot of the flats, there's some pretty cool river flats in there um, that, again, I'm not too sure of, of, the, of the history of it, but there what likely would have been some milling on you know, certain fringes, I guess. But uh, right in the guts of it, no, she's she's pretty wild and and and, and untamed. Very similar to the Tallarors or the Uruhenis, for example. Yeah. Very dense podocarp kind of forest. Um, thing with Tiruwera, there's not a lot of open tops either, eh? It's it's quite closed in. So definitely some big mature trees in there that would have been really good. Uh, some Europeans might have liked like those for their tables or their timber. So you could see why it would be attractive there. Now there's um, <clears throat> nothing like coming across those old trees. We um, mm. came across it. Well, I guess it was a matai um, on the weekend, and it was just covered in moss. Um, this mm. giant thing, and it's you know, it, it's amazing when you find a tree like that. You just want to go over and touch it, and and just be a part of it, and mm. you know, crane crane your neck high skywards, and then you just start seeing all the species that are living off this old gigantic tree, and yeah, mm. you just sit, mm. sit there and awe in awe. Yeah, and that's right. And so you just sit in awe, and it's really cool to slow down eh, and see that. I think um, as hunters, it's quite cool to be able to. You know, I think we, we take them quite a lot through observation. So just looking up and going, oh, yeah, that's this kind of tree and those epiphytes up in there. And one cool thing in Tiruwera I've found recently are the big northern rata, eh? The, um, mm. Obviously, the pseudo trunk, how they grow down and they'll go around the, the host tree, if you like, and that tree will eventually die and it's hollow. And I've seen some really cool examples of those. And um, it's just, it blows you away how these big hollow, you could fit in it, you know, you can hop in these big hollow trunks. It's just awesome. Yeah, there's um, one brewing... I can't remember. There's a brand new service hut in in the Kaimais, and I walked walked to it while I was in there just before New Year's. And there's a um, a rata brewing on a on a big old reedy tree um, along that track, and I just like, looked up. Mm. It wasn't it wasn't in flower, but you, you saw it just obviously just finished flowering, and I was just looking at it like, wow, that thing's going to be 
awesome in 20, 50, 100 years. Yeah. Like, what, what, what an awesome dream. What, what's, how does it sort of start there to begin with? Does it just have a seed dropped up in the, up in the boughs of, of one of the branches or, or what does it do? Yeah, so, so yeah, so a lot of people think, obviously, that trees grow up naturally, it's what we think, but northern rata, as, as, a, as a vine, that, that's how they start their life, so they'll, they'll get into the crown of the tree as a seed, and um, they'll send, you know, roots down, essentially, and over time, um, so they're using the nutrients in the, in the crown of the tree, because in the crown of the tree, obviously, we can't really get to it, so we don't, often don't appreciate uh, how nutrient-rich it is in there, and it's a host of life, and um, so these rata do quite well. And they'll grow down, and uh, over time they'll essentially engulf the tree uh, and form its own trunk. The, the the vines, if you like, or the root system, will connect up and form um form a trunk. But there's some debate as to whether they actually kill the host tree, mm. um, because this this process takes a long time, you know, hundreds of years. So by the time there's some debate again, by the time that that trunk, that pseudo trunk, grows around, they reckon the host tree is probably at a point where it's old anyway and, and may die, you know, naturally. Um, so it may not actually kill the tree, but I wouldn't like a rata growing down me. I don't think that would be. I think you'd, you'd be you'd be packing yourself if you were that mato or that metal, you know. Yeah, yeah, and it, you just just remind me of a, of a kahikatea or so in, in the kaimas as well. It's like, man, how how big do those things get? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, so the kahikatea, you know, being New Zealand's tallest tree, the um, the kauri obviously is. Know, known for being quite wide, quite a big girth tree, but um, the old kakatea, yeah, they get they get pretty big. But um, the northern rata, as well as starting as a vine or as in the top of it, they can start as, on the ground as a um, as a normal tree if you like. But they get are quite short and stunted. But you've got a few of my my folks farm back home um, that started like that. They're quite nubbly, um, but they have no hollow trunk, so they can start as a uh, as a normal tree if you like. Yeah. Yeah, what a what a fascinating thing. So, with, with your with your study, what sort of things did you venture into, and and um, yeah, what what was your focus? Yeah, so again, growing up, um, coming from a farm, I had a few deer running around, so um, backed onto the foothills of Tararua. So I was pretty keen to get into um, ecology and conservation at a young age. So I went to uni and did um, three years undergrad in science, bachelor of science, doing ecology and earth science. So basically trees, plants and rocks, you know, the whole, the whole good mix. I thought that geology would put a good spin on it for future employment. So I did that and then um, realised oh, I probably want to do more studies. So I did another year in, in postgrad in ecology and um, conservation biology, you know, wildlife management. That was really neat. And then I was going to do master's and I thought, nah, I've got to get out of here. I've just, I was getting told off by my lecturers was spending too much time in the bush on the, on the weekdays. So I thought, okay, this is me. I'll, um, I'll, I'll take a pass here. So that's when I started working for Doc on and off. And um, from that hut story I told you earlier, and um, we ended up sort of progressing into the ecology field on Doc for a few temps on and off. And um, looking at, um, I did a bit with uh, the deer plan in Palmerston North. So when I worked on the Manawatu team, we looked at Ruahenes and deer, which is a pretty controversial topic, but um, a pretty cool one to be involved with. So yeah, my, my study kind of led me down that conservation pathway. Um, but in a complete change of events, I'm now working with assets. So they kind of interlink, but um, it's good to have both sides. I think it's really neat to be able to have a conversation with people um, from an asset point of view and the ecology point of view. Because I'm sitting in a hut, you know, someone's in there as well, and they'll ask you, oh, what's your thoughts on 1080? You know, are we really saving the birds? And, and so it's good to, to me to have that knowledge and pass it on. So quite fortunate to be in my position. So you said there that the sort of interest in the deer running around the back of the farm led you into looking at ecology. 
but then what you started studied was dirt forest and rocks like so how, how did that sort of foundation set you up and did you always keep thinking of you know we're going to talk about the animals and the introduced species yeah for sure and and that's a tricky one because at university i mean and in, in my experience anyway and this isn't true for all universities um, a lot of game animals what we would call game animals are treated you know probably as pests or that's how they're taught as so that, that kind of pathway um I, I went into it wanting to change that or to also learn more about that from from i guess an ecologist perspective because there are very two different perspectives there so it's important to realize that that um that whole you know game animal thing and and pest or resource and pest is is very different. So I wanted to understand that, and um, and to do that I had to learn about the whole system. Mm. So you know the, and 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 that's that's really the guts of it. You've you've got to I think you, before we start making assumptions on especially for game animal management you've got to understand the whole system. So that's why I wanted to know about the ecology and the earths. You know what kind of rock types are there? Why is that tree going to grow there? And so on, and then what's going to feed on that. You know, so that was really important. So getting that whole foundation, I guess, um, prepped to tackle those bigger wildlife management decisions. Um, yeah, it was really important. And I guess, I guess if you sort of look at it like a farming perspective, you don't see a whole bunch of broadleaf, you know, paddocks on deer farms. Mm. Yeah, like my, my vision for a deer farm is, is uh, paddocks lined with with broadleaf and, and, and um, caprosma and stuff, but it's not going to be in the paddock. So yeah, is, is that sort of where you start broadening your knowledge that, hey, the the deer want the food and they're going to make it sort of look more like their environment, whereas, I don't know, um, the native bush, the virgin bush is quite dense, like you say, those areas in Rohini's and Taro's and, and mm. Te where are quite dense and compact and, you know, supple jack everywhere, those sorts of things. Um, mm, mm. Is that sort of... I don't, I don't know, I'm just trying to think about this out loud. Is is that what sort of the vision is in terms of the native ecology? Well, I think what it really draws back to, and I'm, you've got to wear two hats here again, you've got to wear your hunter's hat and you've got to wear your hunter hat. And I think they can be interchangeable. So ecology as a, as a pure science or, you know, and I'm trying to understand the system, um, having, it's very hard to see the impacts when you don't want to see them. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of the case, what we do, like we just go in the bush and, oh, cool, there's a few trees here and we don't know what they are, but um, the, the deer aren't doing too much damage. You know? and, and that's a mindset that's very easy to get into because we're not, you know, you're just walking through hunting. You're not really looking and you're not studying it um, like an ecologist would. So there's very two, two trains of different trains of thought there. And like you said, kind of about lining, you know, or having a different type of system with different plants. Like New Zealand would be a very different place if we didn't have these introduced um, introduced animals and browsers do have a massive impact um, on forest regeneration especially um, seeker are a real big one especially mm. consuming beach you know we start to get massive failures in beach regeneration so that can occur and it's been proven to occur with uh, too many animals so that, that difference i guess in understory is really hard to see i mean they used to do the you know good old exposure plots back in the forest service days to see um which gives you an idea but it's not really something you can do management off like it's yeah there's a few broad leaves there but that doesn't really tell us it's quite hard to quantify so um but just knowing that that there is going to be a huge um drop in palatable species you yeah. know it's quite useful but it, it's really hard to act on um as a whole because i mean how, how many how do you know how many deer you're going to go and, and remove 
mm. you know, to just guess a figure. It, so I think that's where the point comes in. It's, it's more about vegetation or it should be conservation, in my opinion, in my limited understanding, definitely not a sub uh, expert on this matter, but um, it should be based on vegetation condition rather than how many animals there are. Because you could have you know, 200 deer or you can have 400 deer, um, but 200 deer might still be too many. You know, mm. you just, it really, even the minimum number could be too much. So rather than just basing on, okay, cool, we, we saw, you know, so many tides, it's rather on how many species are there, what are the condition, what's the growth, you know, so you're measuring different kinds of things, growth rates, um, not just a presence abundance of species or presence absence, um, but actually condition of growth, yeah. So there's a whole range of things there, right? Mm. It's a lot more complicated than, like, I used to, before this, I used to just walk through and I call this some broad leaves, you know. But um, it's it's a lot diff it's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah, it's pretty funny. You sort of say like the average hunter might say, "Oh, I don't really know. I saw those species or whatever you say." But then um, it's almost if if people do act in that way, it's almost cognitive dissonance because when mm. you're looking for spots with deer in it, you're looking for certain things. <laughs> and like we were walking along the track on Saturday, and it was kind of like the hotbed areas. It's like, well, we weren't we looking at binoculars this is the kind of terrain and, and um uh tree species that we're looking for in, mm. in, in the binoculars and you know you, you sort of go around and you see the, the bush change and, and different things and you start mm. you get your heckles up when the bush changes to what you think is a place that deer are living so it, mm. it is kind of there and that's where like having your ecology understanding or or hearing a little bit more about ecology can help you as a hunter help you as a bushman and and you know help wrap this all up into one big conservation effort yeah you're, you're right bang on and and you're, yeah i agree one thing my great expensive degree taught me was i know how to identify the the, the trees they like to eat so it's really good i can oh yeah cool we'll go over there but the cool thing is foraging and um that that's definitely a real neat skill eh? that's like you said about um kind of tree types is identifying what's safe to eat and um that's i'm getting certainly getting into a bit of that and that's quite a cool subject but it's, I must say, some of the guys who do it are just hardcore, eh? Like, it's pretty hard to survive off some tower berries, eh? Like, I'll, I'll give you that, eh? It's, you, you've got to be doing well to survive off what's out there. Yeah, I, was, I saw some berries on a little bush there on the weekend. I was like, oh, I wonder if those are one of the edible ones. <laughs> yeah. So it's just getting that, yeah, that, that whole, um, like I say, the whole ecology does help us as hunters a lot. And I think if you have um, that, that mindset where you can understand both sides of the story, you'll always be better off. I don't think there's a need to be, you know, a hunter or an ecologist. It, you can be both. You just got to wear that different hat at different times. And that's really helpful for uh, going in there and looking in the beach forest and going, wow, there are no red gen beach coming through. There must be a lot of seeker in here. And sure enough, you see lots of seeker and you go, okay, cool. How do we as hunters help that? So it's just taking that next step. And it's hard to quantify that in terms of the pure science because, again, we just go, oh, there's a few beech trees missing, you know. So that's the, that's the hard part is, is, I guess, branching out just that next step. And are you going to see like, um, is it terraformer, like seedlings, juveniles, and then the big old buggers? Are you going to see that? Like, I was seeing a bit of like juvenile remu and, and totoro, but I, you know, you see the seedling, and I don't know if if there's juvenile. I don't know that. <laughs> I, I must have a bit. Yeah, well, yeah. So I, I guess so. They do go through different stages of, of age, if you like, but it depends on the form of succession as well. So. Like in beach, for example, you know, you have a big tree fall down and those seeds that are lying in the ground just waiting, they'll all just pop up and that's why you see huge stands of all beaks that are the same age. So mm -hmm. that's where you get that difference in, um, you know, canopy formation. So 
um, we and Rimu are very different. So yeah, they do have ages and stages. And if you look at a, you know, look on a uh, next time you're sitting on a slip with the binos, just have a look at the, at the foliage around. Often you get like one very muckle muckle things mm -hmm. like that coming out. A lot of those smaller smaller shrubs will start to come out, and they'll have their time. They're certainly you know, they get a lot of nitrogen fixes, and then they'll be slowly replaced by those bigger trees. So it's just a, a stage thing. It's quite cool to see when you start looking at, especially slips. You can you can see it happening. And I, I know a few guys who would have probably gone over and pulled a few of those bigger trees out on slips, you know, just to keep the grass going. So um, you can kind of use that to different advantages, I guess, if, if you like. I'm not saying that because that's terrible, but um, it's really cool when you start to see those bigger trees come in. Yeah. And, and going back to your sort of um, soils and, and stuff like that, um, I, can't, I can't think of his last name. I don't know why it's escaped me right now, but um, David is a professor at, at Canterbury with forestry and ecology one of the things he's written about um is those when they do a certain plot if the seed bed's not there or the soil is wrong then you don't get the the seeds taking off um yeah what what sort of impact does that change in soil have on our seedbed you know is is that what uh, the, it sort of talks about the progression of of the bush that you get that kanuka maybe even gorse first then that that creates a nursery for the bigger trees to grow up through and and take off but if the seedbed's not there then then we've got a hole mm. that's right and and so i'm so at uni i didn't focus on soils because soils scared the heck out of me so i, I went for rocks um <laughs> sounds like me and genetics more, mate <laughs> oh oh I, I avoided genetics too i tell you that much free. but um yeah, so I was more, more into the into the rock stuff, but uh, but you're right, soils and rocks. The foundation there is is really important. I mean, if you look at some of the ultramafics down south, like your red hills, that kind of thing, um, around the Richmond Ranges, there's nothing that grows there, you know, to the extent that we're up here, and that's just because of of that, I guess, that richness of, of the soil and the rock type. So looking back, um, you know, at, at the basement is really important, um, just to understand what can grow there, and um, but yeah, soils probably more so, rocks maybe not so much because soil is not just a it's not just rock it's a whole lot of organic you know, a whole lot of good goodness going on in there can't remember the formulas i didn't listen that well in uni and soils but um yeah there's a, you're right there's a whole lot going on that that can really impact what kind of forest and what kind of trees grow up mm. and that's one thing I'm, I'm sort of fascinated at the moment with this sort of surge in the idea of regenerative agriculture you know having mm. en enough sort of um organic matter injected you know does that mean that our game animals can play a role you know and like i said there's the trade-off that they're, they're browsing at the same time but is their contribution to the organic matter of the of the forest and the soil is that a positive yeah it's another question that, that we don't know the answer mm. to yeah so what do you mean so do you mean through their manure or their, yeah their through their manure around on herds or yeah it's transfer of soil around manure urine um yeah that that turnover mm. of vegetation i mean yeah that's right i mean a lot of i guess that's good to look at that as a disturbance. So in terms of forest ecology, you often look at things as disturbance events, and that mm -hmm. can promote, you know, large scale floods and things and fires. Obviously yep. they, large scale disturbance will initiate that, that, that kind of succession. But yeah, I mean, that, that's a good point. Maybe those smaller, you know, browsers walking around, maybe um, enough of them, they might have a positive impact. I know there's a good, well, a good or bad argument that Mara and Deer are similar depending on which study you read, but um, <laughs> you know, that, that may or may not be good. Um, yeah, a few people are reckon that the Mara are, are just, or that Deer are just Mara running around now, but that, that, that can be debated. There's a few, there's a couple of good articles on either side of that. Eh? It's, um, I, I read both one day for a study at uni and oh, I, was, I was torn eh? as a hunter. I was like, man, <laughs> oof, this is tough. Tough this choice. Is tough. 
Yeah, you definitely wonder how the odd thistle and foxglove and, and of course, the hook grass mm. got in there and, and you kind of go, um, when mm. you see it saw, see it all attached to your, your, your hair on your legs or your, or your pants, you definitely think, well, that was probably, that was probably deer fur. <laughs> that, yeah, that's right. And, and, and that's the thing, eh? Like, if you think about, so think next time you go in the hills, like, as an audience, think, like, when you go to a hut, just look around and see what plants are there. And they'll all be mm. weeds, like foxgloves and, and, like, say, thistles. And they're only, generally, you get them in, you know, heavily disturbed areas. So if you get, um, and you, you notice it really easy in mountain bike tracks or horse tracks, especially, mm -hmm. you'll get gorse and all sorts of stuff, um, you know, blackberry, all through there. And I think it really, it shows you that the level of impact we have with, the, you know, the far remote places, they'll still have the odd weed around the hut. And that's just because weeds are persistent little buggers, man. Like they'll go on anything, you know, they can just live it out and they'll pop up where that sun is, but they won't penetrate far in because their life cycle is real short. But you get gorse in there for, you're in trouble, you know. Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, oh, the guy that's the pest manager for that Mohawk area, um, I found uh, Clematis in there last time that was in seed. And I sort of sent him the photo. I was like, is this Clematis or is this old man's bed? And he sort of gave me the time frame that the old man's bed would have been more like January and this was December. So, and it was smaller. Mm. Um, both him and Dave were asking me about how many leaves they had beneath the flowers. I was like, oh, I didn't take that oh. much, <laughs> didn't take that much notice. But um, yeah, should have yeah. got, got some measurements, mate. Yeah, measurements that's right. Calipers out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, taking the whole number of photos for them. But um, he does one of those sort of things. He asked me about some of the clay pans. He said, "Did you see much gorse out there?" And I said, "Oh, one or two ones." And he said, "Oh, that's not so bad. They won't dominate that mm. the the manuka or kanuka that's up in there will will take over and mm. create that nursery and." And we should get the trees back up in there. So yeah, it's it's fascinating mm. to say. But the, yeah, like I say, on slips you around the edges, you'll grab grab one of the bushes and go, oh shit, that's gorse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or a bit of cutty grass or something horrible. Eh? It cuts yeah. it a bit. Yeah, that's wrong. And what's the vibe with pampas grass? You know, that's not supposed to be there. Oh. Is that right? Yeah. No, nah, yeah. So yeah, that that's another one that can be quite you know quite often um, misidentified identified if you like. It's um, yeah, it's horrible stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so not the awesome weed. It's not. It's not a toy toy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, no, no. It's not a toy toy. And, and there's, you know, it's yeah. It's um. Yeah, I still got it. I still get confused which one. But there's the difference in the seed head and then in, in the leaves as well. You have to go and listen to some. I think a, how many podcasts might have been on how many others one um, talked about it or seen one of his videos because. Yeah, you always forget. Hey, like, I think if you don't see a certain plant for a length of time, you just forget about it and you go. Oh, like um, in the uni, we had to learn like 200 Latin names for all these plants, <laughs> all the native plants. And man, oh, I just had them all good for about a month and then I just forgot them all. And you see this tree in the bush and you're like, oh, what's, I can't remember what that is, you know. If you don't <laughs> use it, you lose it, eh? So how, how, did, how did you go about learning that? Because for me, that was, that was pharmacology and, and probably I should have done the same tactic when I was doing genetics. I probably should have wallpapered my room and, and the little... I think they're like farges and well, it was just complicated in, in a foreign language. So, so, so is pharmacology names, how they mm. work directions. It's just this foreign language. So I wallpapered my room. What did you do to get around learning? Oh, which is weird. Cause you say Latin names, learning muscles and stuff. I could, you know, put them in, in their place, but when it comes yep. to, to drugs and drug interactions, I was like, Oh, I can't do this. <laughs> what did you do, man? Yeah, I can relate. So you say you put maps around of like, you know, you, or you wallpapered your room of, of notes. I wallpapered my, my room with uh, maps of the tarudus. So I didn't really take that technique on. I probably should have. But um, yeah, for me, it was just more uh, rote learning. Eh? I just flashcards. You just mm -hmm. got to, 
and it's it's really hard i, I tried to take because i was doing so much hunting and tramping i just i just had to make that sacrifice i started taking notes with me into the bush and um that didn't work well either because i was trying to hunt and i had to go back and read my notes and i just i was a nightmare so don't ever i mean if you can do it sure but um no just repetition eh? just get a group of buddies and just repeat the heck out of stuff especially for learning like you say i think it's okay if you've got a rote learn stuff but complex systems doesn't work so much but for latin names yeah you just gotta you just gotta <laughs> look at pictures and just spend days of your life in a room looking at it and it, and it does pay off you know it's pretty cool to get out in the bush to be able to remember the, you know i mean it's a useless party trick you know we're out in the bush and you just tell your mates oh that that's you know that's whatever this tree is and they go oh shut up you know we don't we don't want to know what kind of tree it is and you say, oh, my, my 40 grand student loan's got to be good with something mate you know <laughs> yeah. yes having, having a laugh with jason babies yesterday he was showing his little bush block that he's going to start trapping and he's saying about whitey wood and i said to him is that, is that mahoe and he said yeah that's mahoe and then i said yeah i had the situation on the weekend where we walked in and you know remu tree that was obvious and, and i sort of showed it to the guy he's australian as well so i was having to try and mm. get common names and maori names as well and then we yeah. walked past lancewood and i was like oh god what is that bloody thing called and i had leatherwood in my head i was like that's not what it's called and walked in and then we're walking <laughs> back out again so we're nearly back at the car and we walked past it again i was like lancewood I, this one's a lancewood <laughs> Bloody, bloody hopeless. And, and, oh. and um, David's last name is David Norton. Um, he's an absolute champ. And he's the same. I'd just flick him a picture of something and he would tell me the Latin name and Māori name mm. and common name. And I was like, oh, you're, you're amazing. But I suppose when yeah. you're a professor and those sorts of things, you, you know them. That's but, right. <laughs> yeah. It, how, how much of the, the trees like show up? As, it must just be a, a massive syllabus of here you go here's their names <laughs> what 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 does what does that sort of what's the meaning of that go into a, a larger context of, of the course well i guess um for one if you're a forest ecologist which is kind of where i was heading you know plant ecology was my kind of my kind of thing as well as conservation biology and wildlife management and um to really understand how succession forests occur and what kind of forest types we have you got to know the, the trees you know it's it's like you got to know your tools to do a job you know it's the same thing you just got to know what's there um so while it might not you know help you in any sort of mathematical or scientific sense you just got to know what's mm. there it's just that basic understanding and um it's it's basic but it's actually damn hard like it's probably some of the hardest hardest parts is learning all, all the names you know to be honest you're you saying, do it. yeah you're saying about so the life cycle of the forest how much knowledge do we have on the progression how long has this been sort of looked at the, the 100 years the 150 years is that even enough for the lifetime of a forest yet <laughs> oh Always. crikey i mean heck we get remember i'm dealing with assets now i've gone away from yeah you got away these kind of questions but i mean the thing is with, with forests are so complicated and i mean there's even i remember this argument we had at uni we were given this question is there's this big old old rimu tree and it was dead and it was this massive trunk and uh, we looked at it and they said, well, how did it die? And we said, oh, it died of old age. And the question was, well, how does a tree die of old age? Like, hmm. And we just were kind of stuck to that. Like, do trees die of old age? Well, probably not. Like, why would a tree have any reason to die? If it's got the resources and the, the nutrients um, and the water, why would it die? So there was this huge debate that we had, you know, um, it was, can trees die of old age? Well, I don't know. And, and that's a question that's been hotly debated. So can a forest if a forest isn't disturbed will the trees just get infinitely big until they run out of resources i mean that doesn't mean they're going to die of old age it means they're competing with each other so mm. it's it's real tricky yeah you can i think when, when you get um you sit around for too long 
you have too much time on your hands, you come up with problems to your solution to that. So one of those situations. Yeah, all I, all I can sort of think of that is straight away think of human body and, and us mm. dying of old age. Like there's all these sort of things that manifest and the, you know, like I always, always, you know, being an optometrist, think straight to the eye and cataracts. Like we've got this mm. lens in our eye that's impeccably designed and how it works is amazing. Yet in order to be clear, it can't have a blood supply. And so it relies on a flow of fluid through channels through it, through all these all little cells that are like um, set out in a uniform distance. So that's why it's clear. Um, if mm. you have done physics, it, it's got positive interference instead of negative interference. Mm. It, it flows right through. And, but then over time, those little channels break down. So the flow of fluid through it reduces. So it becomes less bouncy. And then it oxidizes. So the DNA and the protein and stuff damage out. And then you end up with a cataract. And so that's just one small example of a lifetime mm. and old age. And I think that's like one of the few things when people are like, oh, I'm just, it's just part of getting older. And they're like, well, yeah, uh, there's a there's a spectrum there's a spectrum of age of, of this thing, but basically everyone gets cataracts, and so yeah, when you mm. talk about trees and and resources and and its internal cellular systems, I think well, mm. surely, surely they can't recycle everything within it in, in a tree. There must be finite resources within it, but yeah, it's a, like I say when you, when you sit around long mm. enough and yeah, you, you come up with uh, problems that you struggle to find the answers to. <laughs> And that was a really good description. I feel like I'm back at UD there. That, that was awesome. That, that was choice. <laughs> there. Oh. I, have to, I have to drop okay. that piece of knowledge about three or four times a day. So I'm, I'm, yeah. <laughs> after, after seven or eight years, I'm getting better at uh, communicating that one. And, and it's even better when we've got our little uh, computer program to sort of show the example. Yeah, it's, it's, it's good. Just for those visual learners out there, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. nice. I could, I could send you an email if you want it. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, a, a pitch is much better. I'm a visual learner, mate. Send me visual a learner, yeah. yeah. I suppose that was that must be what was behind you. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll take my notes into the bush. Like, um, you just mm. they just stayed in your pack. You, you added pack weight for no reason. <laughs> wow, well, I remember doing. Um, I was actually I did a search, I did a bit of search and rescue stuff as well. Not enough as I should. Just get too busy with work, but um, we did a search in Tadaduas a couple of years ago. A couple of yeah, we couple of years now. Flew into Tan Tan Ridge Huddle, Tan Fridges. It's snowing. It's freezing cold, and there was snow in there. And I had a um, I had quite a big uni project on. This was in my postgrad year, and you, you know, postgrad's a huge step up from undergrad. And I had all these projects on the go, and get to my lecture. Like, I've got a search on the go. Like I real, I I need to go do this, you know. And he said, "Yep, sweet. Just know your deadline's the same, and you know, don't fail." And I was like, "Oh shit, thanks, mate." So I flew um, I flew all these scientific articles i had like a stack of them flew them in with me did our search for the day and got back to the hut and everyone was having a brew and you know sitting around by the fire and i was frantically writing out these notes saying all the old guys just gave me so much stick what are you what are you doing and i said well you know this is a compromise you know that's what yeah. it's about finding that level that level of compromise and it worked it worked so what was the project you did for postgrad there was postgrad diploma was it or yeah, yeah, did a postgraduate diploma, but then tend to do masters. So for that one, it was just um just a kind of research project, or I guess a, um like a literature review, if you like, on that one. So it wasn't mm -hmm. too interesting, but I was I was building up towards a, a master's thesis, um hopefully in the Southern Antarctic with our mega herbs. So looking at um kind of growth traits. So um with some of those big for people don't know, mega herbs are kind of plant species that are really unique to the Southern Antarctic. Um, the Chatham Islands kind of has a a few of, of their own as well, but um they're really big. Kind of huge leaved and massive, massive flowers, which is quite unique because they're in a very cold climate. So, 
I was kind of gearing up to go and look at some of those, but COVID got in the way and um, and it was quite expensive and hard to get down there. So I thought, well, I'll take a break from this for now. But um, yeah, mega herbs are pretty cool. They're quite a fascinating little plant. There's a few species and um, they have yellow flowers and kind of pink purple flowers, which is very uncommon in the New Zealand bush. You know, we don't see that really. Um, you often get, you certainly get yellows and your whites because whites are pollinated um, often by flies, certainly alpine flora. Mm -hmm. But down there, there's a yeah, massive array of colours. So it's quite cool. I've been fortunate to travel down there twice um, to the sub-Antarctic and um, hopefully get back down there in the future. So, so that's, that's quite interesting when the alpine herbs are quite small and tiny and sort of bonsai, mm. bonsai size. What, what sort of leads to these large foliages that just trying to get enough light, oh. but then... But then it's kind of wow. like a wasted, like the bigger you are, the more you need. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And and there's a huge, and again, the literature is just chocolate with, you know, kind of different examples to understand why. And, and that's one of them, you know, being big is, is good, but it takes a lot of resources to keep yourself going. But often the leaves, and they might be able to catch aerosols, so salt particles and things in from the uh -huh. ocean as well, a lot of nutrients. But certainly, um, yeah, sunlight's really hard to get in the sub-Antarctic. It's not, it's cold, but it's often mostly overcast. So, when it's sunny, you've got to really ramp up, you know, your energy production as a plant to maximize mm -hmm. that photosynthesis period. So maybe that's a reason for their big size. Um, other kind of arguments are that it's a it's a leftover from a Antarctic flora way back mm -hmm. in the day when the ice ages and all that stuff were going on. Um, you know, they're kind of remnants that have kind of passed through time, if you like. And there's the big question with, with climate change and a warming climate, what's going to happen to these plants? You know, mm. are they going to get cooked? You know, are they going to be not be able to, be able to survive in their habitat? Because basically the Subantarctic Islands are like, think of like the Tararua tops. It's yeah. like that at sea level at sea level. So it's um, you know, it, it's a pretty cool, epic place. The trees don't grow, you kind of get some dracophyllums and a few on Auckland Island, you get a few kind of ratas, but you don't get them big, no only shrubs, you know. You can kind of it's like leatherwood pushing through leatherwood, you know. So yeah, it's a really unique flora and a yeah, really cool place. And so, I just had another thought: Is there like a larger cell size amongst these herbs? Or does that sort of larger size leave them less prone to fracturing from freezing? But then, at the same time, like excessive heat would would rupture them in a different way. Yeah, for, I don't think freezing so much an issue. Like it's not it's not like when we talk subantarctic, we're only sort of we're not quite halfway between New Zealand and Antarctica. Yeah. So. You, know, you might get snowed the odd bit, but it's not like it's, you know, um, I, I don't think it's necessarily, um, or at least what I can remember, <laughs> was necessarily due to the cold. It's probably more so for energy, you know, resource and partitioning and so on. So, mm. you know, it's probably sort of the size of the island is probably good luck. Like you said, this, all the salt and things probably keeps the mm. free, freezing temperature a bit higher. You know, that's what people think about in Vicago that it snows there all the time, but because it's so coastal, it actually, it actually doesn't. You drive 20, 20 minutes north to, to Winton, it's a different story. But um, yeah, Invercargill mm. itself doesn't actually get that much snow. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's just a cold hole anyway, though, eh? It's only supposed to be cold. <laughs> hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, no, it's very good. Mate, so um, where do people check in on this adventure? And, and I mentioned there at the start, your, your Instagram, that, that's, that's sort of how they keep track of you, is it? Yeah, oh, I found Instagram's good. Eh? It's just getting full of ads nowadays. But um, definitely <laughs> for me, I put 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 photos on there. But um, yeah, finding it slowed down a bit with the old ads. But um, yeah, I just all my trips, hunting trips, traveling trips, hut bagging. My goal is to get to every hut in New Zealand. So it might take me a few years. So Instagram might have changed by then. But yeah, Wicker's Adventures on Instagram, and that's kind of my my go-to. And um, yeah, jump along for the ride. It's good.
nice man so we've had a little bit of exploration in, into your life and, and some of the things that have shaped your ideas um what is something for you personally that shows up um as you said you've listened to the podcast so you've heard this question like that keeps you keeps you moving ahead keeps you flowing um i was laughing yesterday when we were walking out i said to the bloke what song do you have you got in your head <laughs> I, was, I was i was i was bopping away and it turned out to be the last song it hadn't even played the full full amount that we were listening to in the car but yeah two days later it was going on in my head you know what keeps you flowing along and as i've said in, in previous podcasts it can be a quote or a way of way of life the thing that thing that drives you forward what's what's that for you yeah, I thought about this because, um, oh, yeah, there's quite a few. I think life's full of full of funny kind of quotes that, you, that stick with you. But one that really sticks for me is that um, you know, life's full of full of peaks and and, and valleys, and um, you can let the peaks and valleys get too high sometimes, or, or too low from the valleys case. And it's important to find that balance between them, eh? So don't let your peaks get too high, and don't let your valleys get too low, and find your mechanism that that achieves that. And for me, that's people, you know, friends and whanau. It, it's it's really important. So yeah, find nice. the balance. Mate, that's bloody awesome. Um, I think our old uh, Ian Evans that did, did that running in the Revenant had a similar idea that it was just like, you know, the peak, the peak, this is, is going to be really shit. Mm. This is going to be really great. And uh, I've just got to, like you say, find that way to move myself forward to the good stuff again. Yeah. yeah. No, bloody awesome. Yeah. Thank, thanks so much, Ben. Um, we'll hit pause and um, yeah, thanks again. No worries, mate. I like how uh, Ben sort of summed up finding the thing that helps you get back on track if you go back to the Ian Evans episode it's kind of a similar thing the peaks and the troughs the uh, peaks and the valleys of the revenant and uh, he was struggling with the uphill of course um, loved the downhill and he just had that in his mindset of, of getting through to the next time that was joyous or enjoyable um and it's the same for life, and it's what uh, Ben's highlighted there. Just, you know, enjoy those peaks, but um, don't leave them sitting there too high so you, that you've got sort of anxiety and uh, crippling ambition so you don't ever get to, to your peak. But on the flip side, you know, don't wallow in the in the doldrums. Don't wallow in, in being down there in the valleys looking up at, at the... Um, at the mountains, being in the dark, being cold, being often damp, um, you know, take action, do those things to move yourself forward to a to a better place, you know, whether to take it back to the nature analogy, getting up to that little break in the bush, that little that little slip, that little clearing where the sun shines through and your mood improves, chance for a breather, you might find a little terrace um, a little uh, finger that's got a li little bit easier going climb and um, yeah one foot in front of the other will get you to the top yeah I, I love being out there in nature being out there in the bush facing the challenges um, and uh, bringing home those analogies of what is truly an awesome teacher um, which is nature and uh, like I said at the end of Steve Nikolovsky um, being out there in nature is, is truth therapy. So bloody cool. Make sure you're following Wicker's Adventures on Instagram. The links are in the show notes. Reach out to both of us. As I said at the start, leave a rating and, and if you've got time, a review. That'd be awesome. Thanks for listening again. Episode 182. Bloody cool.
Catch you next time on the Stag Raw. Cheers.